If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church/give. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part seven in the series, James, Forgetting Your Own Face. What corrupts the soul more than a divisive spirit? The walls of flimsy pretense we build up with pride, partisan politics, and closed-minded tribalism masquerade as wisdom and knowledgeability. But James believes all of it comes from somewhere else, somewhere darker. One afternoon, two people I know were on a walk. It was spring, the air was cool and fragrant, the sun mild and forgiving, sprinklers hissing in green lawns, and the two of them were exchanging pleasantries, I'm told, life stuff. Have you tried this recipe? Oh, I ran into so-and-so on Tuesday. How is their kid? And then one of them mentioned gasoline, the stuff we put in our cars to make them go that like the weather, doubles as one of the great American conversation and commiseration pieces. Gas, one of them duly noted, is expensive. And maybe they assumed the other person would agree and have a laugh or a lament before moving on to some other topic, but the other person grimaced and their voice changed, and they launched into a fiery political diatribe, and it was as if the air around the two of them soured. But these two were close, so that first person, the one who was now regretting having ever mentioned gas prices at all, pointed out lovingly how caustic and rancorous the other person had become at the mere mention of something with even political inference how angry and venomous their words had become, words that seconds prior were gentle and kind. Still, the angry party persisted in their acrimony, calling down insults on the other person, calling them naive and ignorant, a desperate bid to somehow contaminate the unangry person with their own contempt. Misery loves company. But later, that angry person, the story I'm told, the one so embittered over gasoline, hung out with some other friends. Just days later, once again, the conversation was lighthearted, pleasant, how are your kids? I saw a good movie last week, until someone activated this invisible tripwire, mentioning something on the news, and then one person in the group seemed to explode with insane-sounding conspiracy theories. They looked unhinged, the story went, sped up, frantic, railing about which politician is secretly dead and currently being presented to the public as a hologram, which ones have been secretly executed, having been found guilty of participation in a clandestine, devil-worshipping, child-eating, Illuminati cult. And the others noted how this conspiracy theorist's eyes went wide, how they seemed to become manic, how even the most gentle pushback ricocheted from the impenetrable dome of this crazed person's unwillingness to entertain anything beyond what they badly wanted to believe, what they simply knew was true. And why were these others resisting the truth? How could they be so naive, so happily ignorant? 
and the get-together was effectively over. What was left to say, the calm, refreshing sense of friendship and connection had been done irreparable damage by a spirit hell-bent on sabotage. And the irony, to me, was that the person detailing this tragedy of the conspiracy theorist that derailed a friendly get-together was the very same person who had days prior soured a spring walk with their deeply partisan rage against policies and gas prices. But between you and me, what I was really thinking was, if we have the technology to fool the whole world with an entirely lifelike hologram of a politician, then why does my Nintendo Switch not have better graphics? <laughs> this hologram apparently moves around other real-world people and escapes detection by countless viewers watching everything from CNN all the way to Fox News. YouTubers haven't spotted this thing. Why the heck does CGI blood still look so fake? Huh? Why does the digitally de-aged Luke Skywalker look like a wax baby doll? You know? If the president is a hologram, how do you explain the Polar Express, hmm? We haven't come that far. It hasn't been that long. Anyway, open your Bibles to James chapter 3. We are in a summer-long study through one first-century letter by a guy called Iacobos, or in English, Jacob, to the first community of Jesus' disciples in Jerusalem, and really to all Christians spread out across the world throughout time. Now, we at Van City, as disciples of Jesus, with all disciples of Jesus around the world for hundreds and hundreds of years, we believe that this thing we've been reading is a letter. Yes, but it's more than that. A particular guy wrote this letter. He sent it to a particular group of people with real, practical, contextual things on his mind for that group of people in that time and place. But again, it's more than that. The letter, we believe, was also breathed out by the Spirit of God with the express purpose of continuing to speak to all disciples of Jesus throughout the world for all time. So it's a very grounded human letter, but it's also timeless. It's a work of supreme artistic and literary sophistication that is as relevant to audiences thousands of years later on another side of the world reading a translation from a different language as it was to those first disciples of Jesus in first century Palestine, um, ready to unroll that papyrus for the very first time. It's almost as if God himself were the co-author. So with all that said, let's read from James chapter three. Would you guys mind standing with me as a gesture of reverence for the reading of scripture? And let's read from James chapter three, beginning with verse 13. The author writes, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, 
impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. These words are inspired by God. Thanks, guys. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, Jacob, the author of James, has had some very strongly worded warnings about things like greed, idolatry, careless speech, fruitless faux Christianity. But here, in this passage we've just read, he adds an interesting dimension to his list of gripes that kind of gets lost in translation. See, the Greek word that my Bible, the NIV, translates to English as, quote, selfish ambition is erditheia, and it's a a relatively rare Greek word. The only place it shows up before the New Testament is in the writing of Aristotle, and he used it to refer to the corruption and greed of partisan politicians, See, Bill Mounts, one of the leading scholars of New Testament Greek who actually wrote the textbook on biblical Greek and sits on two different translation committees, the NIV and the ESV, so he knows a little bit about the Bible's Greek. He defines Eritheia as, and I quote, the service of a party, a party spirit, feud, and faction. So theologian Douglas Moo argues that Jacob, the author of James, is saying some who pride themselves on their wisdom and understanding are displaying jealous, bitter partisanship that is the antithesis of the humility produced by true wisdom. Scholar and theologian N.T. Wright elaborates, saying so many people across the world are fed up with the way their country is run, with the way their police force behaves, with the way the global economy functions, and so on, often these criticisms are fully justified, as they certainly would have been in James' own day. But the challenge then for God's people is to be able to tell the truth about the way the world is and the way wicked people are behaving without turning into a perpetual grumble. And in particular, without becoming someone whose appearance of wisdom consists in being able to find a cutting word to say about everyone and everything. So James is building on and elaborating on this hyper contrast between wisdom from heaven and wisdom from hell. This is a thread that Jacob has been teasing out from the outset of the letter. If you remember all the way back to James 1 when he wrote that if anyone lacks wisdom, they should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Wisdom in Jacob's paradigm, true wisdom originates in and pours out from God himself. And in last week's text, if you remember Levi talking about the way that foolish, careless talk is, and I quote, set on fire by hell. A selfish, divisive spirit, a politicized, partisan disposition may act as an affectation of knowledgeability, a veneer of wisdom, but it's earthly rather than heavenly, in James' words. It's demonic rather than godly. Jacob calls this egotistical, tribal mentality and attitude, and I quote, unspiritual, which may not sound like a particularly harsh dig to us, but the Greek word he uses always has a deeply pejorative connotation in the New Testament. It's a bit like the modern use of the term the lizard brain, if you've ever heard that. It refers to this wholly unsophisticated kind of primal, cave-dwelling, godless, lowly, self-gratifying human reasoning. 
And if that isn't enough, he does one better by just calling the whole thing demonic, you know, in case everything else wasn't clear enough. Again, this from N.T. Wright. He says, what James is talking about is bitter jealousy and contention, a spirit which is always carping and criticizing, which cannot let a nice word go without adding a nasty one. He says that a mindset like that comes from the world of demons. Yikes. So... If true wisdom comes from above, meaning it originates in and is given out by God and is thus entirely spiritual, it's humble, and it's in service to peace, then false wisdom comes from hell. It is partisan. It's tribal. It's politicized. It is energized by demons. It's primal of the flesh in New Testament vernacular. It's selfish, narcissistic, and it creates only discord and row. So if you turn over a rock and you find false wisdom in the dank, worm-ridden dirt, you'll also find disorder and every evil practice there too. And when Jacob says disorder, he actually uses the same Greek word that he used the double-minded person who blames God for their suffering. It's the same word he used to describe the restless evil of the tongue of careless speech. That word, disorder, in Greek, describes a kind of restless chaos. So again, Mu argues that confusion, disorder, tumults will inevitably break out in the church where Christians, especially leaders, uh uh-oh, are more interested in pursuing their own ambitions or partisan causes than the edification of the body as a whole. Now, you don't have to do a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics to get to the other side of Jacob's logic here. False wisdom divides. It politicizes. It disrupts peace. It poisons and corrupts, breeding chaos and evil. So, what is true wisdom the exact opposite in every way. True wisdom brings people together. It bypasses socio-political boundaries and is uninterested in tribal warfare. True wisdom makes peace. It blesses, it heals, it restores others. It makes more unity, more grace, more mercy. True wisdom values others and is thus considerate and submissive. That's a word that really bothers us. There it is. It is gentle, not harsh, not mean-spirited. It is kind. It is willing to yield. It is meek, benevolent, and merciful. That kind of wisdom is unconcerned with its own pageantry because it's unpretentious. It isn't showy. It doesn't tweet or repost political Instagram stories with approval emojis because true wisdom is sincere. It is the natural outworking of the well-ordered heart. It necessarily expresses itself in a life of love for God and love for other people. In other words... True wisdom is exemplified in the one who actually lives like Jesus, the one who more and more down the winding road of life and discipleship looks and sounds and acts more every passing day, week, month, year like Jesus. But we want sides. Sides are easier. 
Sides are comforting. Sides seem to offer a sense of belonging or a a cause, meaning. In my experience, talking about the way early disciples of Jesus did and did not engage the political arena in order to do justice, tends to invite, like many of Jesus' teachings, accusations of impracticality and naivete. It is very difficult for some of us to imagine significant social change that does not come by way of political power. And if you believe that the best or maybe even only way to enact significant change is through politics and policies and politicians, then your only choice is to participate in the system given. It doesn't take a political science to, scientist to recognize certain limitations in any given political system. Any given political system has a pretty narrow vision for how to conduct society. Top-down power over other people's coercing behavior with the threat of punishment. Jesus' vision for changing the world is decidedly more radical. And radical is often a tough pill for the limited human imagination to swallow. We're often incapable of seeing a third option, an option C, when options A and B are ever before us. And when there is often overwhelming tribal pressure from friends, family, peers, culture, and especially social media to wear the comrade-approved uniform of the tribe. So typically, if your parents were group A, then maybe you pick group B by default, because forget them. Or if your group, group B hurt you in some way, then you probably pick group A to get back at group B. It's the us versus them partisan presentation of our politicized culture, and it cannot conceive of a radical vision for justice and reconciliation that cannot be forced by politics, nor stopped by them. This Jesus called the kingdom of God. But it's often the case that we don't want the kingdom, we want a side. We want a group, a team, an ideology that delineates between us and them so we can know that we're on the right side of history, that we're with the good guys, not the bad guys. Today, the us versus them political disparity has colored the conversation around everything from justice to art and entertainment to social media, wearing masks or ordering takeout, politicians, presidents, everything you do or say or post or watch or listen to, which streaming service you prefer, everywhere you go or don't go reveals your side. And the problem for us as disciples of Jesus is that, sure, if you scour the ideology of your preferred side, you'll probably find this or that position that maybe fits with Jesus in a certain sense, but you will never find the Christian political party or the Christian vision for justice in a political party. And so each of us has to face the frustrating reality of our politically divided world. Will we acknowledge the kingship of Jesus over and against every leader, politician, system, the supremacy of him and him only, even when it forces us beyond the boundaries of a side? You may well have practical opinions about how the kingdom of the world, the governments, should run, and that's fine. Everyone does. You may think one policy makes more sense than another, that one politician makes more sense than another in the context of world government. Anyway, that's fine. Everyone does. The danger is in becoming convinced that your political opinions capture the Christian vision for justice and goodness because a political system cannot bear that weight. And when it begins to crumble, you will be left to rationalize its downfall. 
The danger is in becoming convinced that everything hangs on your people in power and that everything will collapse if they aren't. Thinking of this kind inevitably demonizes your political opponents, creates a moral high ground based not on the teachings of Jesus, but on the politics of the world, and ushers us quietly into the hateful outrage boiling up around us on all sides. It's easier, I'll give it that, it's easier to convince yourself that every Republican is this way or every Democrat is that way, that everything can and should be viewed through the lens of politics. That's what's most important and revelatory about a person is the way they vote, that the only way to change the world is with that vote. But when we return to this strange and subversive story of a people in the first century, a small persecuted minority whose answer to the evils of the empire and being persecuted by political power was to abandon all allegiances other than Jesus and to prioritize the good of others, including your enemies, above yourself. There is a place for righteous indignation against evil and injustice, to speak truth to political power. And there certainly is a place to recognize and acknowledge the evils and corruptions of the state, of any state. But we don't do that as the world does because we belong to a different king and a different kingdom. Our king has the truth. Our king has freedom and he's the only one who has either thing. Tribalism. Partisan allegiances, they tend to warp the heart, to embitter the soul. One minute you're on a walk, the next you've soured the atmosphere with your ranting and railing about gas prices and politicians with the venom in your words. One minute you're at a luncheon and the next the entire environment has been torn apart by insane obsession. And that's the world we know. We know bitter envy. We know selfish ambition. We know that the things that we've seen firsthand every single day, disorder and every evil practice. Because we are, after all, Americans. Selfishness is the air that we breathe, the most hyper-individualistic culture in the world. The scorpion and the frog is a fable that probably originated in Russia in the early 20th century. How about that, Peter? You excited? You heard of this? No? <laughs> all right, well... In the story that Peter made up, a scorpion asks a frog for safe passage across a river riding on the frog's back. And the frog is understandably worried about the scorpion's sting, but the scorpion reassures the frog by pointing out that if the scorpion stings the frog, they'd both drown. How much sense does that make? So can I please just have a ride? So the frog, so that makes sense, and he invites the scorpion onto his back, and halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog, and when the frog, dying, asks why the scorpion, also dying, can only offer, it was my nature. And the parable is about the human tendency to reap havoc and destruction, even at our own expense. Now, of course, everyone here, I'm sure, remembers what the T-800 said in Terminator 2 when a young John Connor asked, we're not going to make it, are we? People, I mean. Mike, where's Mike? What's he say? It's in your nature to destroy yourselves. Mike Jensen, everybody, on his birthday, got the exact quote word for word. Bless him. Bless him. So anyway, the scorpion and the frog. I'm so glad that that worked. Scorpion and the frog. It's my nature. 
In a uh, 2015 op-ed, novelist Colson Whitehead repurposed the fable to explain where we're at as a society. He wrote, you will recall the fable of the scorpion and the frog. Scorpion needs to ride across the river. The waters are rising on account of climate change. Or perhaps he has been priced out of his burrow. Who knows? The exact reason is lost in the frog of pre-modernity. The frog is afraid that the scorpion will sting him, but his would-be passenger reassures him that they would both die if that happened. That would be crazy. Sure enough, halfway across, scorpion stings the frog. Just before they drown, the scorpion says, aren't you going to ask why I did that? And the frog croaks, you do you. (laughs) The laughable, in this case literally, laughable untenability of the you-do-you ideology notwithstanding, we weren't made for ourselves. For you-do-you, the Diet Coke, Instagram, hashtag do-what-makes-you-happy lifestyle, you and I were actually created from and for outward-projecting love. It was love that compelled the father in his creative artistry to fashion for himself companions and collaborators. And it was with love that he designed us for himself and one another. It is not good for human beings to be alone, he said. In the Bible story, the project of creative love has been vandalized by evil. Humanity has been led astray. And as a result, that good and innate design to love and be loved is bent backwards, collapsing in on itself. We were made for generous, noble, self-sacrificial love, goodness that generates within by the light and love of God and then radiates outward to all of creation made manifest in benevolent concern for other people, for friends and strangers, even enemies, for communities, for culture, for the environment, for the animal kingdom. But our freedom to choose other than God's will has enabled us to direct that love back in on itself so that we can follow our own preferences and broken sense of self-preservation with little regard for others at all. That is in us. But the way of Jesus draws our attention not only to our own warped souls, but to God's good purpose for them in the beginning. Jesus is inviting us back into what God intended in the first place. So what do we do? Does true wisdom somehow create an emotionless mask of passivity? That's what the word submissive makes us imagine. A person who is so accustomed to non-confrontation that they become unconcerned with justice and evil at all, who never has a harsh word to say about anything. Well, that can't be it, because Jacob, the author of James, has had very strong words, even sarcastic words, against evil and favoritism and envy and the idolatry of wealth. And it's going to get worse, trust me. True wisdom is not some kind of spiritual transformation into a hybrid of Ned Flanders and Fred Rogers. But we are being made to ask ourselves difficult, even painful questions about the person we are becoming. Look at that list in verse 16. Wisdom from below, bitter envy, selfish ambition, disorder, every evil practice. And then contrast it with verse 17. Wisdom from above, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Which type of person would you rather know? Which type of person would you rather have in your life? Or more importantly, which person would you rather be? 
not for your own sake, but for your own soul, for your friends, for your family, for your spouse, for your children. Jacob believes that the things you are deciding today, the way you spend money, the way you prefer one person over another, the way that you talk to other people, these things demonstrate the type of wisdom at work in your life right now. So, where are you headed? As Americans, we've been given a paradigm of the real go-getter as the one who builds a brand, has the followers, makes the money, destroys their political opponents, has the power, has the sharpest words against their enemies. But Jesus believed that real power was in self-sacrificial love for others. Pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Once more from N.T. Wright, these characteristics have nothing to do with naivety. They are hard to acquire and hard to maintain. They can only be sustained at great personal cost. They only appear where there has been a steady habit of prayer and self-discipline. Wisdom from above, in other words, is not passive. It isn't lazy. In fact, it cannot be obtained or carried out without incredible discipline and self-denial. And it is more challenging and more freeing than the easier but ultimately fruitless scramble for sides and tribes and power. So again, you have to ask yourself, where am I headed? To what kind of wisdom do I subscribe, consciously or subconsciously? Or here's a scary way to put it that I was wrestling with this all week. Would those who know me, who know me in my brokenness, Describe me this way, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And if not, why? Jacob says there should be obvious evidence. His words were, let them show their wisdom by their good life. Not just the things that they say and not just the things that they do. All of it, their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And maybe all this settles heavy on your tired head and you're wondering if anyone would say any of those things about you. Maybe you've been duped by modern political fundamentalism or at least lured in by it. Maybe you're chasing money or followers or position or power, or maybe you've been careless with your words, hurt someone, hurt lots of people, or maybe you've done nothing. You've been lazy, running down a life clock with nothing much to show for it one way or the other. These are the seemingly insurmountable obstacles that keep people trapped in patterns of destructive thinking and living that frees those of us desperate to change our lives but stumped in the quest to actually pull it off. We feel terrible about doing what we're not supposed to do and shame paralyzes us with inaction. We feel overwhelmed by where we're not so we go nowhere at all. Or maybe, for the sake of our own sanity and comfort, we simply coast, banking that God will somehow give us a kind of pass, that it will work out without us doing much of anything at all. But the scriptures, from cover to cover, encourage neither defeat 
nor complacency. They demand neither shame nor satisfaction, but the simple and often difficult work of putting one foot before the other in the uphill, downhill, walking, running, stumbling, falling, standing work of the spiritual journey we call discipleship. And God finds us there, and he changes us. People change. God changes people. Now, Jacob, the author of this letter, did not believe his own brother was the Messiah. He heard him speak. He grew up with him. He saw the miracles. He knew the teachings, and he said no. But his life changed. He wrote the letter we're reading. God rewrites the human program. He sets scorpions on the backs of frogs and they both sail to the other side of the river unharmed, different. And the frog can only ask, how did you overcome yourself? How? How do we overcome ourselves? That is the story of spiritual formation and it's happening just slowly. If the list of wisdom from above isn't you, then remember, it's not that it never will be. It just isn't you yet. And it isn't too late. Don't sit miserably in the discouragement of failure, but don't sit idly in the assumption of tomorrow. Ask, how do I become the woman you want me to be, God? The man you want me to be, Father. The friend, the husband, the wife, the mother, the father, the sister, the brother, the accountant, the engineer, the teacher, the artist. Where are you leading me and who will I be when I get there? And then, one foot in front of the other and walk. The walk is the good life. The deeds done in pure wisdom from above. And we can learn to do that together. People change. God changes people. So let's pray and ask him to do so. Father, we sit before you with the humble recognition that we are in and of ourselves incapable of transformation, that Christ-likeness is not natural, and that in and of ourselves, we do not have what it takes to become perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We also recognize the incredible, scandalous, near unimaginable, seemingly too good to be true promise of the scriptures that you, God, by your spirit, the spirit of Jesus, find us in all our brokenness and all our garbage and everything we've done wrong and all our failures and back and forth and stumbling and falling. And you meet us there and you pull us up and you walk arm in arm with us. And more than that, you carry us. You do the heavy lifting of transformation. You love us enough to give us autonomy. You will not club us and drag us into formation. You will not force us into obedience. But in the language of the scriptures, when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. You are reciprocal. And more than that, you accomplish what's seemingly impossible by changing us into the people you want us to become. The one who begins the good work in us 
is faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of King Jesus. But for many of us, myself included, these are often just a bunch of flowery words. We feel trapped in the mire of our own shortcomings, the season and stage of life where it seems like nothing much is happening, or when suffering, or distraction, or anxiety, or confusion, or chaos, or laziness has simply swept us away from the journey of spiritual formation. It feels like nothing is happening at all. And to me, one of the more reassuring beauties of the journey of discipleship is not that every failure requires some kind of incredible, transformative, turn-to-Jesus moment, some revival moment, as if all of discipleship were youth camp, but that, like any relationship, we fail and we repent. We acknowledge our failure, we ask for forgiveness, and we ask you to lead us back into the truth more and more every day. So that's my invitation to you guys. If you're up for it, I want to spend just a quiet moment before the Holy Spirit, acknowledging whatever failure is ever before you. Maybe there's something obvious. Maybe it's something on the periphery. Or maybe right now you feel like you are, by the grace of God, enjoying a season of obedience and growth. All of those things are part of discipleship. Well, whatever the case Acknowledge where you're at before God and ask for his direction, that he would lead you more and more into the true wisdom from above, that those who know you best would see that list of virtues described in James 3 and say, that is him, that is her. Let's pray and ask God's spirit to speak. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.